It was nighttime, and uh, the Lord was surprisingly approached by an unusual visitor named Nicodemus. He was an unusual visitor because he represented uh, Judaism, the Jewish religious establishment, and Rabbi Jesus was not part of it. Nicodemus came nonetheless because he perceived this unusual Rabbi Jesus was saying things and doing things typical rabbis could not do. And he came filled with questions because though he was religious, he was empty. He was quite sincere, but quite lost. He was complying with the strictures of his religion, uh, but he did not have assurance of right relationship with God. He was in his own efforts trying to be right with God, but never came away at the end of the day with peace about the whole thing. It was a very frustrating experience for him, and something in him was being stirred up so as to envision maybe, maybe this unusual rabbi Jesus has something to offer, and he does. And perceiving what was going on with Nicodemus, uh, the Lord Jesus said to him, you must be born again. That's what he told him. You need outside help. You need transformation. You must be born again. And it isn't that Nicodemus was disinterested in the whole concept, uh, but it was that he was confused by the whole concept. And in this context, this conversation at night, it's probably likely that in Jerusalem the night wind was blowing and the Lord said this to Nicodemus as recorded in John chapter 3 verse 8. You could find it there. It's John chapter 3 beginning in verse 8. And the Lord said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from and where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said, the Lord, you hear the wind. What's more, you feel it. You can, you can sense it, but you don't really know much about it. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. The wind operates independently of your understanding. The wind is not dependent on your full comprehension of it. And the Lord says, so too is the operation of the Spirit of God. He too acts independently of you, Nicodemus, and he cannot be fully comprehended. The Lord was saying this to an intensely intellectual man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the equivalent of our Supreme Court. He was well-educated and well-schooled in his religious traditions. He was a head-oriented guy. And it was a stumbling block for him. And the Lord said, relying on it is not going to resolve fundamental issues for you. You can't even comprehend the coming and going of the wind. How in the world can you fully comprehend the work of the Spirit of God offered to you to create the born-again experience in you? 
And so Rabbi Jesus told him that being born again has nothing to do with one's intellect nor with one's adherence to any religious traditions. And this rabbi Jesus told him that being born again is a function of God's spirit and is incomprehensible and undeserved. It is a work of God in man, not of a work of man in an attempt to get to God. And Rabbi Jesus told him, just as the nature and activity of the wind is a mystery, so too is the nature and activity of the Spirit of God. Interestingly, uh, the same word, pneuma, spelled P-N-E-U-M-A, pneuma. Interestingly, in the original language here, the Greek word pneuma is used for both words wind and spirit. It's as if the Lord is saying, Nicodemus, the work of the pneuma, the wind, is invisible and incomprehensible. And Nicodemus, so too is the work of the pneuma, the Spirit of God. Both are God's doing, not man's. God controls both. Man controls neither. You cannot fully understand nor explain the wind, and you cannot fully understand nor explain the working of God's Spirit in salvation, but you can easily observe the effects of both. The wind can be so strong, it can alter your position. It could have impact on you and bring about change. And so too, the strong presence of the Spirit of God in a person's life can have irreversible impact on you and bring about change. And the Lord Jesus is trying to persuade Nicodemus, the head-oriented guy, using an illustration from nature that the same is true supernaturally. You can't understand nor control the wind, and nor can you fully understand the Spirit of God. But the effects are telling. I hope if you call yourself a born-again one, a Christian, I hope you'd be able quickly to prove to someone you is. And the evidence would be the changes that have been wrought in your life. I must tell you, the indisputable evidence of authentic Christianity is change in a person's life. You may not be the world's most astute theologian, and you may not know all the tricks of arguing the faith, but you ought to be an expert on the old you and the new you, the new you attributed to the work of God's Spirit in you. You ought to be able to be in touch with and communicate at a moment's notice, look what Jesus has done for me. I'm a new creature in Christ. I was thinking about this the other day. I make the mistake of paying attention to the news all the time. I'm a news junkie. And uh, junk is the right word when it's coming, you know, to the news nowadays. And I was just thinking of all the various points of view on the fundamental issues of life, marriage and the sanctity of human life and the value of an elderly person in the face of state laws now moving in the direction of so-called mercy killing and uh, even financial management in our country's national indebtedness and uh, all kinds of points of view about, uh, well, and uh, this is interesting to me, Israel and all the rest. And I thought to myself, oh God, 
But for the born-again experience, I think I would, like others, be on the wrong side of all of those issues. Why would I argue against two consenting adults who indicate their love for one another, who happen to be same gender? Why would I resist uh, at all costs, their interest in being in a covenant of marriage. I could argue the rightness of it for them until I got the mind of Christ. And then I realized that he had a point of view in marriage that cannot be messed with. And I suppose I would have been on the wrong side of the abortion issue for crying out loud if a young woman mistakenly comes to be with child at a very inopportune economically and psychologically in her life, wouldn't it be better for her to terminate the life of the child? I can see myself arguing that position and now it's repulsive to me when I think about God's valuation of life. I would have been on the wrong side of things with reference to Israel. I remember years and years ago, a Jewish person said to me, aren't you concerned about what's happening in Israel? And I thought, I don't even know where Israel is, for crying out loud. Isn't that the place where they have camels? I'm from New York. What do I know about Israel? In New York, we steal hubcaps. That's what we were interested in when I was here. That's what we do. That's our kind of sport. Stealing hubcaps. Don't talk to me about Israel. What's up with that? Don't they eat funny food there? And then I got the mind of Christ and had the born again experience. Now, I was watching something on TV the other day, and it was not good. And it was waging war against my soul. It was about a theme that I didn't need to be exposed to for crying out loud. It was a uh, an approach to sexuality that I know flies in the face of the standards of a holy God. And I found myself, isn't this something changing the channel? Well, that doesn't sound like a very miraculous thing, but it was to me. That was a supernatural transformation that took place in my life. I was bothered by that, which never bothered me before. One time, I used the Lord's name in vain in the course of playing basketball. I missed a shot. I used the Lord's name in vain. I was bothered by that. There was no preacher around to tell me thou shalt not use the Lord's name in vain. I'm not sure I could tell you which commandment that was or where to find it in the Bible, but it was the implantation of the Holy Spirit of God in me who jabbed me, messed me up. It was as if there was a preacher there saying, Stuart, don't do it. It was that real an experience. That's an Miraculous to me, indication of the born-again experience. Can you, can you speak to things like that? How could it be that you or I would be inhabited by the immense, transcendent creator of the universe and he not make a difference in our lives? I sing different things. When we were singing today, I put myself in the mix and I changed the words a little bit so that instead of singing some to the, uh, about the Lord Jesus, I made it songs to the Lord Jesus. Uh, that's a change. It's a whole different person. Can you see? You see stuff like that in your life? And so the Lord is making the case, Nicodemus, you can't understand all this stuff. You don't even have the wind figure out. Let, the, let alone the enormity of the work of God's spirit in your life, but the effects of the wind are evident, and so too 
are the effects of the Holy Spirit. When someone says, oh God, I need to be born again. And so here's Nicodemus' response, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? You see, that's, the, uh, that's an overemphasis on one's intellectual capacity. But that, that's the way it is for some people, you know what I mean? And so, so right now, uh, Nicodemus is letting the mystery of the how uh, of the new birth keep him from the fact of the new birth. See it? And so we read verse 10. Uh, Jesus answered and said to him, now look at this. This is tough stuff here, but loving. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Oh, man. That's like a dagger in the heart of a proud man who thinks he can comprehend the lofty heavenly truths of Almighty God in the strength of his own finite intellect. And so the Lord puts it to him. <laughs> How can it be, Nicodemus, that you, does your Bible say the teacher or a teacher? Oh, it should say the teacher. If yours says a teacher, you should sell your Bible, that Bible, at a garage sale. It's a definite article. It's a slam. The Lord is, listen, Nicodemus is not just a teacher amongst teachers. He is the highest, most esteemed, most credentialized teacher at that time in Israel. Are you the, you're the guy, all the other Israelites are looking to for answers about life and spirituality and <laughs> you don't understand these things? That's what, he's, that's what he's saying to him. Nicodemus, you're educated in the traditions of your religion and yet it seems that your religious traditions are actually keeping you from knowing how to be born again. And the Lord continues in verse 11, truly, truly. Remember I told you uh, that's actually translated amen, amen. And you see this several times in John's record here of the Lord's dealings with Nicodemus. When the Lord says truly, truly, amen, amen, he's essentially saying to the recipient of what he's saying, listen up. This is really true stuff. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Don't you find it puzzling that the Lord says, we speak of what we know? Who's the we? I don't know. I'm suspecting maybe it's the Lord and John. I, I don't know. Maybe the Lord is including all of us through the ages who have had the born-again experience in the we. We, who are rightly related to the Father, we know about this stuff, but you don't accept it. Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And that's what the Lord had been doing with Nicodemus. He spoke to him about lofty heavenly truths in simple language. He accommodated himself to Nicodemus so that Nicodemus could receive it. And so the Lord tried to reduce all of these transcendent truths to concepts like wind and water and birth. And the Lord is saying, Nicodemus, if you don't even get it when I reduce these things to, to this earthly vocabulary, how in the world can you, teacher of Israel, 
receive the essence of what I have to offer you. And the Lord says, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. You know what his point is? Nicodemus, you can't come to grips with this stuff in your own intellect. This is a matter of revelation, not comprehension. These truths are so transcendent and distinct, they have to be revealed. And you can't get a grip on it because you haven't resided in heaven. The only one who could reveal these things to you, Nicodemus, is me, the one who is speaking to you now. Because I was in heaven from before time, I descended from it, and I brought down to earth, literally down to earth, otherwise inaccessible heavenly truths. Nicodemus, you're trying to elevate yourself so as to capture a full understanding of heavenly truths in your own IQ, and that won't work. You haven't been there, but I have from before time. For I and the Father, who existed in eternity past, are one. I've come down. I have brought otherwise inaccessible heavenly truths down to earth so a guy like you could apprehend them. And, and then the Lord says in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent or snake in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Interesting. Yeah, the Lord's real smart. <laughs> and he knows Nicodemus is an expert in well, we call it the Old Testament. That's the only Bible Nicodemus had at the time, Hebrew Scriptures. And the Lord knows Nicodemus knew of the passage he was referring to. It's in Numbers chapter 21. I'll tell you briefly what happened. The Israelites were in their wilderness journey. They started grumbling and murmuring against God. What in the world are we doing out here in the wilderness, they said. There's no food, there's no water. We want to go back to Egypt, back to bondage. The Lord was very displeased, and he said into the midst of the Israelites, snakes, fiery serpents, and they bit many, and many died. And they cried out in repentance, we have sinned, oh God, have mercy. And God always hears that cry. When you claim your rights with God, he turns a deaf ear. <laughs> when you cry for mercy, he's all ears. And so he told Moses, get a pole make a bronze or brazen image of a snake, put it on the pole, lift it up on a hill. Tell Israel, when anyone who has been bitten by a snake, a poisonous snake, looks upon this brazen snake uplifted on a pole, they'll be saved. They will be, they will be delivered. And the Lord Jesus is telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, don't look at me like this is new stuff. Oh, you, the teacher of Israel. Just as that serpent had to be lifted up on a pole, so too must the Son of God be lifted up on an old rugged cross. So that, just as in Numbers 21, those who give the look of faith to what is lifted up will be saved from the penalty of their sin. He's drawing a parallel. 
And he's saying, Nicodemus, why don't you get this? As the serpent is lifted up on a pole, so too the Savior is to be lifted up on a cross. Death is the punishment for sin in the incident in Numbers. Nicodemus, death is the punishment for sin in us. And just as God provided a remedy for the penalty of sin in Numbers, so too he's provided a remedy for Nicodemus's sin and for everyone's sin. And that's himself lifted up on a cross. The Israelites of old in Numbers easily could have asked, how could this be? The same question Nicodemus is asking, and the Lord Jesus is telling him, stop that and just accept it. It's true. God's gracious provision for our sin is impossible to fully comprehend. But when one looks in faith, Upon the one lifted up on the cross as a substitute for sin, that one is saved. I've made this statement which has rattled some of you and caused me to receive emails. Thank you so much. I do stuff like that when I feel lonely. I've made the statement, I don't know how I got saved. Uh, I did it on purpose to dramatize this. Uh, I don't know how it happened. That on one day in a military barracks, it was September 5th, 1973, I was moved on the inside of me to be repulsed by my sin, which I knew separated me from a holy God. I don't know why and how at that time I had this internal conviction. And I don't know why and how on that day suddenly Jesus, as a substitute for my sin on the cross, made perfect sense. I know, I know how we get saved. I understand that. I just don't know how the Holy Spirit started that and where he came from and why on that day and why not the guy in the next barracks room? Why me? I don't comprehend the Spirit. I don't comprehend the wind. But boy, the effects of the Spirit coming into my life are very noticeable and have been since that. Since that very day. And so the Lord is saying, Nicodemus, your forebears didn't understand the unusual nature of a snake lifted up on a cross as a remedy for their sin. And you don't fully understand me lifted up on a cross for your sin. Stop seeking after full understanding. And why don't you just accept what has been provided for your sin? Why? Verse 15. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So though the Lord Jesus is lifted up in the sight of all, he does not save all. No, only those who believe. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. How can one be born again? I think the Lord Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and anyone today, look at the one who is lifted up on the cross. Look with the eyes of faith and thus you shall live eternally. Folks, the whole world has been bitten by sin. Did you know that? Romans tells us this, for the wages of sin is death. How then is a person born from above? How is he or she saved from eternal damnation? By believing on Jesus Christ, by looking to him, lifted up on a cross as a sin substitute with the eyes of faith. Do you like snakes? I run into people every once in a while who do. Those are folks I don't want to be alone with. <laughs> Odd. Most 
normal people do not like snakes. And so the raising of such a contemptible symbol in Numbers 21 on a pole ordinarily would have caused the people there to shrink away in horror and repulsion. But, but, but in this case, the Israelites had to look on the snake's image in order to live. People may find it contemptible in the same way that a loving God would subject his son to such a torturous, humiliating, and repulsive end. But this is the remedy, the excruciating death of Jesus in our place as the remedy for our excruciating sins. Theology students at the University of Glasgow in Scotland have been told, theology students, that if in the class they were attending, if de depictions, explanations and illustrations of the crucifixion of Christ, if that upsets them, they are free to leave or not attend class at all. And the university there in Scotland issued this statement, we have an absolute duty of care to all of our students and where it is felt course material may cause potential upset or concern, warnings may be given. I'm so happy that they're taking care of the future leaders of tomorrow. It is true that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is a horrendous thing. <laughs> Yet it is, the only, it is the only remedy for our horrendous sin, which we have committed against God. Uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is repulsive. It is, is as repulsive and horrible as it must have been to gaze upon a snake lifted up on a pole. But you must not dare try to clean it up or make it palatable. It is God's costly provision for our sin. The remedy exacted an ugly price, and it reveals the ugly nature of our sin. People may find it contemptible that a loving God would have subjected his son to such a torturous and humiliating and repulsive end, but this is the remedy, the excruciating remedy, the death of Christ in our place. That's the only remedy for our sin. I think the Lord is saying to Nicodemus what, by extension, he's saying to those of us today, don't so marvel at the strangeness or even harshness of the remedy that you deny its reality. Marvel instead at the grace of God who provided it. Where would you be fellow Christians, but for the remedy. When I was a new Christian, I used to sing this song. It was about the grace of God, wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. I do not fully comprehend God's role in salvation and divine sovereignty and free will and, you know, all this stuff, Calvinism and Arminism, all this kind of whatever, all this intellectual but I'm so grateful in the power of his spirit. Though I didn't fully comprehend his regenerating work, I accepted it as being true. I'm glad I didn't so marvel uh, in the uh, expansiveness of it <laughs> that I stood 
idly by and rejected it. I'm glad that though I don't fully understand the grace of Almighty God, I'm a recipient of it. (laughs) Wonderful grace of Jesus. That's what the hymn said. Greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? You see? Where? You tell me. Where shall my praise begin? Taking away my burden. Setting my spirit free. Oh, the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. I can't with my mind alone reach and wrap it around the profound nature of God's redemptive work. But I'm glad he came near and used words like wind and birth and water and all that so even a finite being like me could understand. Jesus lifted up on a cross is the remedy for my, for my sin. Have you been a recipient of the wonderful grace of Jesus? Or are you like Nicodemus? I don't get it. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. Get out of your head and see what God's doing on your heart. Is he stirring it up? Because you may be just like Nicodemus, credentialized, having a lot of societal esteem at the top of his religious game, and yet empty as could be. Maybe that's, maybe that's you. Could I commend to you, if that's you, the wonderful grace of Jesus. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. Do you know it? How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall my praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free. Oh, the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches you and me. God bless you.